Hi. 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 Hello. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about. I'm curious about building open, authentic, loving relationship. I'm curious about jealousy. I'm curious about polyamory. Does it just mean that you're fucking all the time? How can I tell my parents that my partner is already married? I'm curious about... How do you know when you're too busy to have another relationship? I'm curious about dominant and subordinate relationships. I'm curious about sexual health. How can relationships relationships evolve with people as they grow and change? And having the experience of inverting for the first time when I genuinely didn't expect to and feeling what that felt like in my body... I was like, how many other things in my life can I do that I don't think that I, that I'm a hundred percent convinced that I can't do. And how would it feel in my body if I were to like experiment with doing them? And I quit my job like six months later. Mm. So, wow. wow. Welcome to the Curious Folks podcast for those challenging the status quo in love, sex and relationships. My name is Effie Blue. And I'm Jacqueline Misla, and today we're challenging the idea that witches and magic only live in fairy tales, and are curious if witchcraft can offer us a different lens by which to see ourselves, our bodies, and our relationships. Yeah, fascinating topic. I come from a culture where magic and witchy rituals are a big part of everyday life. Uh, What about you? Yes. And so I am Puerto Rican. And so as a part of Caribbean culture, indigenous Afro-Caribbean culture specifically, there are different things like Santeria, which is an Afro-Caribbean based religion that well, I heard a lot about as you know, growing up, I grew up in the Lower East Side of, of New York. So there was Santeria, there were botanicas. Botanicas are the places where you can buy the Santeria things like candles and herbs and Mm. necklaces and charms and powders and lotions, et cetera. Mm -hmm. The magic shop. Exactly. The magic shop. Yes. Except you don't find like card tricks. It's not that kind of magic shop. (laughs) Yeah, right, right. Not like magic, not not illusions, but like witch shop, a witchy shop. Yeah, so witchy, exactly, mm. witchy shop. Right, 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 right. Right, so witchy, we, the brujas were the witches. And so I grew up really religious. And so I knew of Santeria and Botanicas and brujas and, and all, I knew of all those things. But it wasn't a part of my world, my mm. direct experience. There were some things like tradition things that we would, I would see, particularly like my non-religious grandparents do. Mm. But it felt more cultural to me. Mm. Let me say it was separate from my life and separate from how I saw the world. And it was just a cultural aspect of growing up Puerto Rican. Mm. Yeah. But it sounds like for you, it was more. Yeah. It's kind of a, uh, the lines are very blurred. The culture that I grew up in is even though it's a Muslim culture and during the time that I was living in, in, in the country, the the lines between religion and mysticism and witchery and ritual and magic were kind of blurred. There's a culture of like reading coffee cups. So the type of coffee we drink, you kind of, when you're finished drinking it, you turn, you put the, the saucer on top of the cup and you spin it three times and you flip it over mm-hmm. and you let the coffee drags, the, 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 coffee that sits at the bottom of the cup like drip down through the inside of the cup and you wait you keep touching the the bottom of the the cup and once it's cool then somebody with insight foresight mystical sight opens the cup gives it like a gentle shake and looks at the cup inside and can tell you this 
elaborate story, a reading, similar to, you know, a tarot reading mm-hmm. about where you're at and your future and your options and what's coming up for you. And mm-hmm. that's so ingrained into the culture. It's very, very, it's, a, it's, it's very common. And yeah. some people are known for their special abilities to read the coffee, coffee cups. And other people will, you know, say things like, oh, I, could, I just don't, I just don't know. I just don't know how to do it. But everybody has some sort of an opinion. Mm-hmm. And those with you know, these special abilities are sought after. Is it like a horoscope where you, like, there are lots of them out there. <laughs> some of them may be good, some of them not, but it is a part of the culture to check and see what it says. It's closer to a tarot reading than a horoscope reading because everyone's cop tells a different mm-hmm. story mm-hmm. and you interpret it. And very similar to the tarot readings mm-hmm. or tea or tea leaves, mm-hmm. like every culture yes, reads something, right? The culture I grew up in just reads mm-hmm. coffee cups, you know. There's also a bunch of rituals, things God, that are, yeah. I think, intertwined with the mysticism of Islam, which we don't hear about much, right? So where Islam is right now in, in the modern, like today, has some darkness, mm-hmm. has that dark shroud all over it. The Islam that I grew up in was a lot gentler and and has this, like, had had mysticism woven into it. And it was less dogmatic and and sort of less kind of, hyper-religious as the Islam that we know today. So um, my Mm. grandma would sew these like tiny parcels, like triangle parcels of prayer slash magical beans slash whatever it was into inside of my, my, my uniform. And, you know, there's that kind of stuff. Also this idea of like going to see tarot readers or psychics or, or that kind of thing is, it's very normal and expected. You know, people will say things like, you know, people who are like expecting mothers will be like, oh, I went to see a card reader and this is what they said about the baby. Or, you know, I have a really decision, you know, hard decision mm-hmm. to make. So I went and saw a psychic. Like, and no one, no one, everyone's like, yeah, that, of course that's what you do. Mm-hmm. As you're talking, it's making me think about the blurred lines between what's considered magic, what's superstition, what is tradition. Like I think about my Catholic friends who, you know, cross themselves when Mm -hmm. they pass a cemetery. And is that magic? Is it superstition? Is that tradition? Like what, what, what is that? So it made me think about that as you were talking about Mm -hmm. like sewing in the pieces and like the things that we do, but may not know the origin of the thing, but it becomes practice. Mm -hmm. And so it's interesting to me, like how all of those things blend together. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I couldn't even, I couldn't pass them apart for you for this conversation. I mean, I have seen some of the, you know, the thought leaders and professors and doctors and science people touch wood because, you know, the conversation comes up and one of those things like superstition where it's like you touch wood, right? And these people are bright, scientific, Mm. you know, educated segment of this culture and they will do things like believe in the evil eye which is you know linked to envy or they will touch wood which is you know another sort of crossing yourself type thing right Mm. i think the the bucket all of this stuff goes into is belief right whether it's superstition culture religion Mm -hmm. it is it is just strong Mm. ingrained Mm -hmm. beliefs in something that we cannot see a belief right. in some power or energy or something that we can't see. Yeah, yeah. That makes sense to me. I think the conversations you and I have been having about this, one of the things that came up for me is the difference between my 
exposure to this kind of stuff and yours is that my culture almost promotes it. But I think the religious background that you came in kind of banned it, shunned it, shamed it, cursed it. Mm -hmm. I think that's a different experience. Yeah, but it's, you know, I grew up believing in talking snakes that were a manifestation of the devil and people rose from the dead and that that food multiplied into the thousands. So there was so much magic actually in the things that we were learning about within within the Christian faith, but they were not called magic. Mhm. Sure. Sure. What about today? Where where do you land today? It's a good question. Today, I feel complicated about it. I am generally skeptical about things that I don't understand. (laughs) So Mm -hmm. I do lots of research and try to figure out things so that I can understand how it works. But then I also really love, appreciate, and seek out wonder. So Mm -hmm. (laughs) I'm kind of of two minds where like, I want things to make sense. I want to know how the magic trick got done, Mm -hmm. but I also want to be surprised and delighted and, and have, yeah, have wonder of, of something that lives outside of myself. Mm. So I think that's where I live. Let me say, I've had a complicated relationship with horoscopes. Mm -hmm. I am a Gemini. And I know nothing really. I know nothing about horoscopes. I don't know anything about when Mercury is rising or the moon. I I should know because people tell me it does impact things, but I don't. But I have a complicated relationship with with being a Gemini because part of being a Gemini is like two different parts, two different selves. Mm -hmm. And for a long time, that felt like that was a tell because I actually was two different people. Mm -hmm. I was the person I was portraying on the outside and the person who I was on the inside. And so I rejected it because I was like, shh, shh, be quiet. (laughs) Don't tell people Mm -hmm. that I'm two people. And then as I got older and like became one integrated person, I was like, no, this is not true. I'm not two people anymore. I'm one. So I've had like a complicated relationship with that. But we did a reading with Haley, which we'll talk about after our conversation with her. Mm. And that actually changed my mind on a few things. Mm. That's crazy. Wow. Yeah. 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 I am more agnostic when it comes to this stuff. And, you know, I rarely seek it for myself. But it crosses my path on regular basis. Things like I've been gifted tarot readings before. Friends will ask me to come along to a reading of some sort for emotional support, or you know, like it just crosses my crosses my path on regular basis. And the reason why I land agnostic versus skeptic, where you know, skepticism is kind of where I live with this stuff. I think I land on agnostic because. Whenever I encounter magic or tarot readings or zodiac signs or even most or even more niche modalities, I find that they somehow show up true or accurate or insightful or touch me in a way that really resonates. And I, I'm like, how can this be? So it's like, even though the skeptic in me wants to reject it all, I just, my experience of it has always been so positive and so resonant that where I land with it is kind of agnostic, really. Mm-hmm. So I don't seek it. I do read Susan Miller for my Zodiac sign for funsies. I like her app. I just, I have it on my phone and I will just read t- mm-hmm. two sentences she says about Scorpio because anything that I ever read about Scorpio, I'm like, ugh. Yes. You see, this is another what, thing in my life. It? I'm like, uh, what's it why? about? What, yeah. What are Scorpios? 
tell me, tell me the a one liner of what is what it means to be a Scorpio. Oh, like passionate and like it's a sexy sign of the zodiac, and they're supposed to be passionate mm. and stubborn and driven, and you know, um, <laughs> like have dark. That sides doesn't sound and, like you at all, yeah, actually, Blue. What? Um, so yeah, I mean, just anybody who knows, I know nothing about any other sign. I just know about Gemini's a little bit because, because it's like the twins, right? So that's, I understand that. Right, exactly. Um, and yeah. I just know about Scorpio because that's what I am. And whenever I read that stuff, I'm just like, damn you, how can this be so accurate? <laughs> right. I mean, that was certainly our experience with our tarot reading. Yes. And even in our conversation today with Halen Belay, I was able to see magic Mm. and how it connects to the lens in which we see the world, our sexuality, our relationships. So I was able not only in the tarot reading to be swayed that there's something to this, Mm. but even in the way that she just talks about it as being a mindset and a lens by which Mm. to see oneself and one's relationships, I thought was really interesting Mm. and shifted the way I thought about some things. Yeah. Yeah. So our guide through the conversation that we're going to have today is Halen Beely, and she is a body worker, a sexuality expert, yoga instructor, and a pleasure witch who specializes in interdisciplinary approaches to mind, body, spirit, and wellness. She's a trauma-informed health educator with over a decade of professional experience in and out of the classroom with a focus on helping people of all ages live their healthiest, most pleasurable lives. And so Stay tuned at the end because we're going to be sharing a promo code that you can use to get a discounted tarot card reading with Halen. Before we jump into the conversation with Halen, I want to quickly remind you that you can find out about our upcoming episode topics and guests through our Instagram feed and submit questions that we would be delighted to pass on to our guests. So follow us on Instagram at wearecuriousfoxes for instant access. Enjoy the conversation. Hi, Halen. Welcome to the show. Hello. Thank you for having me. Yeah. I'm super interested in what, what we're about to talk about. But when I hear about the word magic, uh, my mind bounces between Disney's fairy tales and my grandma sewing something into my school uniform on the first day of school to dancing naked in the woods, chanting all sorts of things to an old lady with long skinny fingers tapping her pointy nails on a crystal ball and many, many, many other different scenes. So I'm, I want to start this conversation by asking you what magic means to you. Yes, I think it's really interesting that a lot of times the, uh, the first impressions that people have connected to magic are, and to witchcraft are these aesthetic images. Mm-hmm. Um, it's either like, like you said, like the sort of Snow White evil witch character. It's the craft. It's like a cool crystal grid they saw on Instagram. It's dancing around naked in the woods. In my personal practice, magic and witchcraft refers less to like the aesthetics of my life and more to the approach, the framework, the kind of um, embodied experience of moving through the world. Mm -hmm. So my witchcraft, my magic, isn't something that I could necessarily describe to you in scenes, the way that we're talking about these Mm -hmm. scenes of these images and icons of what magic looks like. In my life and in my practice, what it means to be a witch is to have a very specific approach to existing in the world, which basically says that I have the ability to understand the world around me intuitively and that I have the ability to manifest my will into the world purposefully. And those are two concepts that can go anywhere from, you know, I think really 
basic grounded, um, CBT principles, you know what I mean? Like things that people might be familiar with from like a a psychoeducational context, all the way to, you know, ritual work and potions and spells and invoking deities, whatever the specific strategy is, all of those things have the same basic principle behind them, which is, I believe that my interpretation of the world is legitimate. And I believe that my ability to act on the world is legitimate. I love that description. I appreciate you naming that it is a framework and a way of thinking and not an act and not a costume and not a moment. I'm, I'm just curious, how how did you get introduced to this? What were the the moments that led you to come to this new way of looking at the world? So there's the, what I would say is like the obvious story of when did I start calling myself a witch? And then there's the much longer and more subtle story of where did this witchcraft come from? Um, I think the, the shorter story, right, is that in college, as an anthropology major, um, I was really interested in just stuff in general. And one of the things that I got really attached to and excited about was this understanding of witchcraft as being something that is, as you were saying earlier, Effie, right? It's like cross-cultural. There's so many different representations of it. It exists um, through so many different points in time. That's interesting. So what's there if I go kind of digging through there? And the result of that digging around was a project that at the time I called My Feminism Involves Witchcraft. Um, My politics have changed since then. I wouldn't have necessarily titled it the exact same way. But at the time, the purpose of this project, which was a a newsletter project where I was sending out um, kind of these essays and poems and rituals and kind of basic um, introductory stuff about the things that I was exploring and discovering, was to start writing the text basically of this framework that I was starting to develop um, from looking at all of these different practices and then connecting those to that aforementioned more subtle story of uh, my own emotional experiences, the cultural background that I come from. And I was just thinking about the, uh, the example you gave Effie of your grandmother sewing something into your clothes that as I started to look at witchcraft from this academic perspective, it very quickly broke down into like, wait a minute, I'm not looking at something um, sort of vague and analytical. I'm looking at something that's giving me language to describe the things that my mother would do when I was sick or, mm. you know, the, the advice that I was given going out into the world um, that wasn't, shall we say, legible to the dominant culture, right? Um, It's not necessarily the stuff that you're going to be told in school is like, this is how you live a good and safe life, but with stuff that I carried very closely to me, things about, um, you know, the importance of food, the importance of the domestic space, the importance of uh, intention, and even the way that you look at things and your gaze. These are things that as a child, I learned about in the kind of cultural folk context Um, As an adolescent, young adult, I was learning about in this really academic kind of book learning context. And then after school, the parallel thing that was happening was my professional development as a health educator, sexual health educator. And uh, after school, I started to do more work with like the physical body, became a yoga instructor, started studying more about somatics. And that sort of brought everything really full circle into the framework of witchcraft and magic that I talk about, that I practice and that I teach about today. So it really started with, I think, a version of witchcraft that 
really all of us are familiar with, which is like, even if it doesn't come from familial or cultural background, I think all children have a tendency towards superstition and kind of a belief that because that's what it is to be a child, right? You're trying to figure out how things impact other things and how the world works. And so I think children are really prone to finding these really intuitive and magical ways of understanding and relating to the world. And so like to be a witch as an adult, it's partially this political thing, right? My feminism involves witchcraft. It's partially this, um, this like cultural thing of going back to, to cultural and folk practices, but it's also like a playful thing. It's a reclamation of this kind of childlike interaction with the world. Like, how did you understand the world to be before you were told by some sort of outside dominant force that like you're wrong and you don't know things? Um, so that's how I became a witch is that I, I grew up and was like, wait a minute, at some point in this process, someone told me that I don't know things. And I actually, I think that I do. It's beautiful because it pushes back on those fairy tale concepts that if, if you are good, you stay on the path. If you stray off the path, then you're a witch and something is bad, right? All of the witches were evil because they either exerted power, they felt like they could manifest and change things in the world, they wanted to do some, something different. And so I, in this moment, my I can feel myself expanding my perception of of certainly not only witchcraft, but what I can do and what is possible. So appreciate that. That was really interesting. I'm interested in, you said that for you, these were two parallel things in your life. And then when you started somatic work, it felt like something clicked and it connected. Can you connect those dots for us? For sure. Um, so on my website, I have a manifesto because I'm a Leo and I'm very dramatic. And so when I started doing this work, I was like, I'm going to have a manifesto so that everyone knows exactly what I'm doing and why I'm doing it. And the language of that manifesto is that all people deserve an integrated life and the healthy pursuit of pleasure. And it used to be an integrated sex life. And I just took out the sex life at a certain point because I was like, I'm just talking about all the different versions of yourself, right? We want to bring them all together. What that sentence means to me and what it means about the work that I do is that I have come to understand that all those things I was doing, sexual health education, um, emotional and mental health education, uh, being a yoga instructor, being a, um, I was doing a lot of like uh, freelance writing. And so like, like media consulting stuff, I was doing all this stuff that was really, I'll put it this way. I had undiagnosed ADHD until I was 26 years old. So I was doing all of this stuff that I was like, I perceive these things as connected and I don't know how to make that legible to other people because mm -hmm. in my mind, it totally makes sense that this stuff all goes together. I'm the person doing it. So that's what it all has in common. And getting to a place where I could understand, no, actually all of these things are connected, not just because I'm doing them, but um, for these deeper and richer reasons. I'm about to like give away the secret to the whole the whole shebang is polyvagal theory. Essentially, the polyvagal theory is like a, a cornerstone of somatics. So it is a, without going too into the weeds about it, it's a, an understanding of our physiological experience of emotions, motivation, um, intimacy, vulnerability, and how we interact with our environment and vice versa. Learning about these things kind of like unlocked something for me where I realized like, oh, these political questions and this stuff about uh, activism and um, how the world should be in this political way. And my lived experience of moving through the world are intimately connected. 
you can't actually, it's not like the world is like civilization, you know, the video game where there's someone who's like dragging and dropping little icons and creating these social structures and kind of creating these systems of oppression in an architectural fashion. It's the lived experience of people interacting with people that has produced these things over enormous amounts of time. And the way that you get someone to like exist in these, what are like, if you can, if you can find a way to zoom out, completely illogical and insanely harmful and violent systems. It takes like to, takes kids going into K through 12 education, being taught to sit in one room for eight hours a day, to ask to use the bathroom, to um, be moved around by the sound of bell, right? You train them somatically to think that that's not just normal, but good and a marker of responsibility and value and uh, success and just goodness as a person. And then you have a little self-enforcing part of that machine, right? You don't have to have someone coming in and architecturally saying, okay, so now you're going to go to this place in your life and you're going to make these relationships and have these choices because you have taught someone in their body to replicate and to, um, to recreate those dominant systems of oppression that like, you know, starts with the state and then goes to the family and goes into these interpersonal relationships. Mm -hmm. So I had an experience of the actual literal experience itself was that I did a headstand for the first time. I was like, I don't believe this is possible, but I'm just going to like follow the, the dialogue and see what happens. And having the experience of inverting for the first time when I genuinely didn't expect to and feeling what that felt like in my body, I was like, how many other things in my life can I do that I don't think that I, that I'm a hundred percent convinced that I can't do. And how would it feel in my body if I were to like experiment with doing them? And I quit my job like six months later. Mm. So. Wow. wow. I am interested in, in tarot and how that build builds into your life and tarot readings and what does it have to do with the body? So yeah, let's dig in. So yes. I like to say that there's like as many ways to read tarot as there are tarot readers. And even to say that is a little misleading because um, what I really mean is there's as many ways to, to do divination as there are diviners. So in the way that I use tarot, which I sometimes refer to as like a social emotional perspective on tarot, is very specific in kind of its framework and purposes. So the type of tarot that I do is not about figuring out what is going to happen tomorrow in a deterministic way. There are other tarot readers who do that. That's just not what I do. The type of tarot that I do is built on this kind of fundamental idea that you have this intuitive knowledge, right? This kind of nervous system knowledge that you're not consciously um, given access to. And that there's some kind of random quantity, you know, magic, the universe, the divine, however you want to think about it, some kind of quantum something that means that you can kind of let that subconscious pull forward images that are going to be revealing to you of something that you already know that you need to have shown to you in a different way um, in order to be able to like really see it and internalize it. And so tarot cards can be a way of doing that, kind of pulling forward um, the images that are going to reveal to you insight that you already have from your, your own intuition. So what that means is, you know, when clients come to me for readings, I can't really tell you if you should quit your job or not, or what will happen if you quit your job, but I can tell you what you already know about whether or not you want to quit your job and what you already suspect and what you already know about what would happen if you did quit your job. 
peeling back maybe some of the layers of like self-questioning and, and doubt and kind of the things that keep us from being able to access those intuitive thoughts and feelings and information in our conscious waking life. All of those kind of self-criticizing and self-questioning things that, or even other questioning, like I'm thinking about being in talk therapy, right? And my therapist can say something and I'm like, yeah, but you're a person. So I can, I can lie to you or I can, you know, I can fabricate or I can um, take all my defense mechanisms to you. If I look at a tarot card and it makes me feel some type of way, I mean, I have before, but like, I can't argue with the card. You know what I mean? I can't sit there and be like, no, you didn't make me think about that actually. So you're wrong. The way it makes me think about it is that somehow the cards get you to get out of your own way. It's it's a way to kind of bypass you blocking your own way, getting in your own way of, of knowing what you know and ignoring it on some level because of some discomfort or some teaching or often shame and guilt and all those kind of things, that it is a way to get out of your own way. For sure. That's like the number one thing that people say to me after readings is I already knew that. I just like didn't want to... I didn't want to know it, but like I did already need to know that. <laughs> yeah, that's what I was going to ask you is what if, when someone does reading with you, what should they expect? And it sounds like that's part of it. It's like they should expect that the thing that it, they're either avoiding or know to be true will will reveal itself. Yeah, I mean, it really depends. Um, I've been doing this for like I was reading tarot for myself for years before I started doing it for other people. I've been reading tarot for other people for years now. And I still like, it feels like every single time I have a new client is like doing this process all over again, where I'm like, gosh, I really, I I wonder if it's going to work this time. Like, I wonder if they're going to get anything out of it. I really don't know. Um, And then, you know, we chat, we talk, I tell them all their stuff. Uh, Usually when I'm doing readings, I ask people not to say anything when I'm doing my first kind of go through of the cards. um, Cause I, I want to keep people from feeling like they need to validate or respond to kind of things that I'm saying as I'm saying them. I just want to be like, here's all the stuff that's on the table and then we can talk about it. And so there's like this long silence, right? Of me just like monologuing all of this stuff where I'm like, I'm really telling this person about themselves. I'm talking about their their dad. Like I'm really getting into some stuff. I hope it means something. And then being like, okay, what do you want to talk about? And just having some, it's a spectrum, right? Like sometimes it's, I don't want to say anything because I feel like I worry of like, I actually, that was enough for me. You know what I mean? Like I'm going to go process all of that stuff because like that is what I needed to hear. And it's a lot. Sometimes it's, crying from just the catharsis and relief of being able to acknowledge something that was really uncomfortable or scary, um, kind of living in, in the background, or to feel validated in seeing something that they were maybe insecure or concerned about. A lot of times, though, people are usually coming to a tarot reader because they're in some kind of crisis, right? Um, so a lot of times the experience is either you're coming because you're in crisis and the cards are validating, like, yes, you're in crisis and here's some like small and concrete things you can do to start to take care of yourself. Or sometimes the cards will reflect back to you. Yes, you feel like you're in crisis. That is real. What's literally happening around you is actually not dangerous. And that can be extra useful information actually to have the perspective of, oh, the cards are helping me to see that I can understand certain things as being reflective of my internal world and other things being reflective of my external world. And all of those things are interacting with each other. I like to think of it as the tarot, the cards are giving almost like a language or like a material, um, like a media medium for your intuition to speak to you with. 
because most of the time our intuition is communicating to us in the form of like bodily sensation and impulse and kind of like thoughts, images, these vague ideas that are in our, our stream of thought. But that's also where we hold our like conscious cognitive thinking self. And it's almost like having like siblings in a room, like way past the point where they can share space. You know what I mean? Where it's like actually maybe giving the intuition a separate kind of field to communicate on will help to distinguish what is my intuition, my emotion speaking, and then where is my kind of rational mind? I mean, this is also DBT, right? Where is my emotional mind and where is my my rational mind? And how can I kind of bring those two together dialectically to find wisdom and find the discernment of my conscious mind and the wisdom of my unconscious minds together? Yeah, that framing is something I've never heard before. And it makes complete sense that this is a medium for us to be able to hear our intuition. I'm curious about how tarot and magic affects your approach to relationships. Sex is this place that is really illustrative of this thing that I think is fundamentally true, which is like, you can't argue with reality, right? Like there's this mythology of like the rational mind that dominates the body. And like, you can be in this perfect control of yourself or that that's what it means to be a optimally functioning person. You know, you can have exactly the sex life that you want. And that means having all of the, like, you're checking all the boxes on your, on your list and you're like, everything looks the way it's supposed to do. And it's exactly how I want it to be, even though internally, emotionally, it's like, this is something that I actually hear a lot with young cis men um, who have these ideas of like sex is categorically a thing that I should be wanting to have, but I'm frequently finding myself having sex that is not pleasurable, even though I'm having orgasms and I'm like bragging about my sexual experiences. I'm not actually experiencing pleasure because, right, the body is actually more in charge than the mind is. And so you telling yourself like, this is awesome. I'm like hooking up with a really hot person but there's a part of your nervous system that's like, you don't know this person, you're uncomfortable, there's been a bunch of red flags on this date, like you're ignoring a bunch of things. You also you're broke, you're having terrible relationships with people around, you know what I mean? Like whatever it is that's going on that's stressing you out and actually making it difficult for you to be present in the moment. All of that stuff is going to supersede the rational mind being like, no, I choose to enjoy this experience, right? When the body is not exactly on board. And getting that permission, I suppose you could say, uh, or at least that validation and awareness of like my body has wisdom. And on some level, I can't argue with it. Like I can't argue with my material reality. I can't argue with my sensations. I can try my best to um, affect change on them, but I can't be like, no, you don't exist. You know, like they exist if they exist. Seeing that as real in a magical sense, right? Seeing myself as someone who can intuit the world around me and manifest in the world around me and have those capacities, that's affected my approach to relationships in, I think, again, this more subtle like framework way. It's not like I'm like, oh yeah, I'm a witch and I uh, am like a sex educator and I have sexual partners. So I like do all kinds of cool and crazy sex magic stuff or I'm doing love spells all the time or I like sell uh, love magic stuff. None of that stuff is, is true. For me, what it means to be a witch in my relationships actually just means that uh, in my relationships, the exact same framework and philosophy is called relationship anarchy. So it's like, what, what does it mean to be a witch in relation to other people? It just means relationship anarchy. And that is a perspective and a framework for looking at relationships that really privileges this idea of like, okay, things are what they are. And I, as a person, 
my ability to understand the world and to affect the world, those are sacred things. So I can't argue with them. And with those things taken as the foundation, then how do I want to make decisions about the world around me and the life that I'm living? Hearing your story and how you approach uh, how you approach all these things and how they connect the dots really makes sense to me. And where I arrive is that it is empowering and it brings clarity and it connects us to our bodies and our, our already um, the information, the knowledge, the wisdom that we already have. And then gets us to a place where we kind of come up with an optimum design for our relationships, for the way that we live, love and connect, which is something that we really believe in in the show. So it's it's kind of interesting how we still arrive at what we believe yet through this like wonderful, like literally full of wonder kind of path and, and end up here. So it's, it's beautiful. Yeah, I would even say that um, for me, it's like, I think something that has been really useful for me in in my work is this distinction between intentions and goals um, in like in practice, right? Like that that it was a big shift for me to go from thinking about my sex life in terms of this is the sex life I want to have, like structurally or like in terms of activities or like, you know, boxes that I'm checking to this is the way I want to feel about sexual activity that I'm engaging in. I like to think of it as like, instead of having a map, having a really, really good compass and being like, I actually don't need the map because I trust that this magical little compass is going to point me in exactly the direction that I need to go. I think we live, we live in a society that really trains us to be like, you know, you need a map and you need a lot of maps and you need like the best maps, the most high quality maps possible. And I feel like the thing that all of these different practices have given me is this kind of newfound appreciation for the way that things are done as opposed to the things that are being done, the intention and the energy and the quality behind those things, as opposed to just like the um, objective like thing itself. Mm -hmm. And that's been the most transformative piece of all is being able to have the compassion of like this is shadow work, right? Being able to say like, oh yeah, I don't, I have a different relationship to failure now. I'm not scared of failure the same way that I used to be. I'm not scared of being wrong. I've like moved to that last stage of unlearning perfectionism where I've unlearned the need to be perfect in my unlearning perfectionism and can say like, I know my intention in moving through the world that I'm moving through. And that actually is what allows me to move through the world with grace. Um, And grace meaning not like I'm like dainty and graceful, but grace meaning like I can accept the world that I live in and experience it with that kind of that oceanic feeling of, you know, presence in in the world. As you're talking, it makes me think you, you talk about that it's not just about the thing, but it's about the process and, and moving through those things, those processes with intention. I'm wondering what that looks like in terms of your ritual and spells. How does that manifest in the witchcraft that you do? So I used the human sexual response cycle as kind of a, I don't want to use the word templates. That sounds a little too like one-to-one, but as a general guide, I'll say for developing my ritual practice, the human sexual response cycle, polyvagal theory and somatics, somatic experiencing, kind of bringing all these things together and seeing, okay, the things that all, all these different things have in common that, that they're showing me is that if I think of my intuition my pleasure, these things is all existing along the same neurological pathways. I'm working with my nervous system and my my tool for experiencing the world around me. Then I know a bunch of stuff about how people experience pleasure, right? I've been teaching sex ed for a really long time. Um, there's a term that gets used a lot of like creating a container for a sexual experience mm-hmm. um, or like in BDSM circles, creating a scene, setting a scene. 
a lot of stuff from like sex ed world about how do you construct a safe place to explore things that might otherwise be vulnerable. And then the human sexual response cycle as like a very kind of concrete, like literally a line, a linear description of what does a satisfying sexual experience look like? And then kind of zooming that out into what does a satisfying physiological experience feel like? Because on some level, that human sexual response cycle is just a description of what it feels to have a satisfying um, kind of physiological, like cathartic somatic experience. My theory is that that's why we tell stories in that three-act structure is because there's something really deeply in our nervous system that is satisfied by that kind of like structural intensity and then drop off. Mm -hmm. So knowing all of that, right, when I'm creating ritual in my life, because I'm an intuitive witch, which means I do a lot of creating ritual rather than um, learning and practicing rituals that are passed down. My rituals always start with cleaning my body and my space. My rituals always start with something that is really easy and low effort that's going to make my environment or my body feel more comfortable or more pleasurable. Because I know that once I'm doing the harder stuff, the shadow work or um, the manifestation or, you know, whether it's like, whether the climax I'm moving towards is facing my deepest shame or asserting my greatest wish, right? Whichever direction I'm going. I know that those are both really vulnerable positions, much like orgasm is a very vulnerable position. So I want to create a really um, welcoming environment, a long red carpet to like bring me into that experience. Mm -hmm. And then just like in sex ed world, we know that people need aftercare, especially after really vulnerable sexual experiences. All of my rituals also have a built-in component of aftercare and recognizing that like the ritual itself might not be like the ritual is healing, but the ritual itself might not feel good. Uh, a lot of shadow work doesn't feel good. It sucks. That's kind of the point is to be able to tolerate sucking more. But uh, just because the ritual itself doesn't feel good, that means actually it's extra important that I build something into that ritual process that's going to help soothe and bring me back to a place of safety so that I don't have a relationship to that ritual or to that shadow work that is based in fear because I did something really scary and then there was no aftercare. And so now my nervous system just remembers that experience is scary. Yeah. I never thought about that in terms of the three act and, and the way that we tell the story and in our sexual experience. And it's making me think about, yeah, what are the ways outside of sex that we can create space and then take care of ourselves after the vulnerability? Yeah, that's beautiful. And I will say learning how to communicate sexually and learning how to be honest with myself and with partners about like, I don't want this to be true, but it's just literally true that this is how I feel. Again, I'm, I'm the same person communicating sexually as I am non-sexually and non-sexually. That is an incredibly valuable skill to have uh, just out existing in the world, interpersonally, professionally, whatever, to be able to just be honest about your needs, wants, and boundaries. Again, it's one of the reasons why I love hanging out with sex educators because on average, they're people who have put a lot of intentional time and thought and energy into this concept of needs, wants, and boundaries communication in a way that like materially changes friendships that I have with sexuality educators and like more um, superficial relationships that I have with sexuality educators because it literally changes every kind of interaction that you have when you've been doing that kind of work. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again, like how these things connect and guide us to this sort of, I have to sit and think about it, right? Like it all makes sense to me. And it's, it's the dots that are connecting for the first time. And every piece of it is, like, I, I know every piece of it 
to be true. And it's just, I'm kind of re-understanding all of it and the way they fit together. It's like having a puzzle that fits together in different ways. Like you have puzzle pieces and you think they fit together one way and then you somehow the same puzzle pieces fit together another way and still make the same sort of picture, same shapes. Kind of kind of interesting to me. We would want to talk about this forever and ever and ever. There's so many questions and so many so many um, different areas to explore. And, you know, we've been able to get to know a lot of you through you, you sharing your experiences with us. And we want to sort of follow that trail for a little bit and get to know you a little bit better personally through our rapid fire questions. Um, how do you feel about that? I feel excited. Although rapid fire has always been a weak point for me. So I'm really going to try mm. and be rapid. <laughs> okay. I think it's a bit like your car. It's like, just say the thing that comes up first, right? That's the right answer because there's no right answer to this. So whatever whatever comes up first, just like throw it out there and, and that will be the right answer for sure. Okay. So what is one piece of advice that you would give to your younger self about love, sex, or relationships? I would advise myself to have embraced the idea of selfishness a lot earlier. Um, it took me until like my mid late twenties before I kind of had the aha moment that like, wait, if I exist in a body in a social position that has been like pathologically trained out of feeling like I deserve things, then maybe things that I perceive to be selfish are actually not selfish. And when I feel like I'm being selfish, I'm actually just doing right by myself. Wow, I needed that advice now. <laughs> Forget <laughs> when I was a kid. Yeah. <laughs> I'm like, yes, actually, I need to really sit with that. Well, so interested in what is one romantic or sexual adventure on your bucket list? It's funny. I don't really have a bucket list in that way. Um, I've been lucky enough to be a sexuality educator for the last 10 years. So I feel like I've had a lot of opportunities to think about and work through and decide what kinds of things I want to explore. But something that I'm really excited to grow into in the next like year, I guess since we're at the beginning of the year, I'll frame it that way, is as a relationship anarchist, my, my relationships are a reflection of my interior world, right? Like there's certain kinds of relationships that I've just categorically not pursued for the last couple of years, other kinds of relationships that I've really been prioritizing. And I'm finding myself growing into a stage in my life where I'm it's like so unbelievably happy with the relationships that I have um, because they're built on this kind of honest communication about needs, wants, and boundaries. So I'm really excited as I'm moving forward to have more and more of these relationships that are outside of these socially constructed categories of what relationships are supposed to be like, right? Like I think 2018, 2019, I started to more consciously explore the idea of romantic friendships um, because I realized like for me, romance is an emotional need that I don't need to have met by uh, like a sexual partner. It's not something that I need to have met exclusively by like one or a small group of people. And it's something that enhances my friendships, makes them like, you know, really beautiful and allows me to be more discerning in my romantic and sexual relationships otherwise, because I'm not relying on getting that need met solely through those other sexual or romantic partners. So like I have at this point in my life, several friends that I would describe as like having romantic friendships with. Um, I have several people in my life that I think of as life partners who I'm not romantic or sexual partners with. And I'm also developing new relationships with romantic and sexual partners because of places where I have grown in my own relationship to trauma, where I'm finally at a place where I realize that 
I'm ready to have sexual partners who are also life partners and like have that like reintegrated uh, in my own personal life, which is really exciting. Nice. Yeah, there's a I, there's a lot of folks in my life who are revisiting friendships. And so it's interesting to hear how you are making those connections, because I think that that's something that people are reevaluating right now is why can't romance live in relationships that, that don't involve sex? Yeah. Especially when sex is something that can be so um, volatile and complicated for people. You know, we live in a really sex negative society. It's like we put so much pressure on sexual relationships that makes it really hard to work through all of that sex stuff. You know what I mean? In my personal life, I'll say I had a much better time figuring out my sex stuff when I was able to say like, okay, I know that for me, it doesn't make sense for me to have all my emotional needs met in a type of relationship that categorically is going to be volatile for me because of the stuff that I'm working through. Mm -hmm. Sure. Makes sense for sure. And I think relationship anarchy allows for that, which I think is also what, what makes it kind of interesting structure in the first place. Let me ask you a question that we ask everyone. And then, you know, the answer is always I wake up in the morning. Uh, but how uh, do you challenge the status quo? By telling the truth and by liking myself, which are, I think, things as a, again, as a neurodivergent person who was undiagnosed for like most of my adult life, I feel really lucky um, that at and speaking very much for myself right now, um, for me, I'm really glad that I was not medicated as a young person because of the context that I was in as a young person. I think if I had been able to um, do certain things, I would have. I was very motivated to do those things. I just found that I couldn't. And one of those things is lie about how I'm feeling. Um, I am so grateful to have a quote unquote disability that makes it really hard for me to lie about how I feel <laughs> um, and uh, kind of brings me in very close proximity to my feelings and being able to tell the truth. Like one of the diagnostic criteria is like people with ADHD say inappropriate things. I'm like, well, it's not inappropriate. It's just true. Um, if you don't want to <laughs> hear it, that's your problem. It's true. <laughs> here, 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 here. <laughs> That's great. Um, last question. What are you curious about lately? So many things, but I, I think the most honest answer I could give is uh, my latest hyper focus is Dungeons and Dragons. I'm actually really proud of myself for not bringing it up at all during this podcast because I bring it up really in every, well, I guess I'm doing that right now, but um, I bring it up in every conversation. It made it in. It made it in last second. It made it into the podcast. Right at the finish line. Um, <laughs> but the reason I'm so obsessed with it is because as a sexuality educator, my relationship to D&D is like, okay, yes, I'm a huge nerd. I'm not going to, I'm not going to test that point. I am a huge nerd. And Dungeons and Dragons uh, and tabletop role-playing more generally has been such an exciting place to bring all the stuff we were talking about this episode because it's a way like role-playing in general is a way to work with your own like self-discovery and interoception and self-understanding. That's really powerful because it allows people to like depersonalized just enough that they're willing to be way more vulnerable than they would be otherwise. And seeing how closely D&D &D actually relates back to like tarot, pleasure, magic, sex ed, like these things that I never would have connected, even as the person who, again, is like coming to all of those things. Um, I'm planning on actually doing some, some workshops this summer of like sex ed tips for DMs and also vice versa, because mm. I think my secret desire is to start like a club of yoga instructors, dominatrixes, uh, dungeon masters, like all these people who are doing the exact same kind of um, like 
creating a safe space for people to explore vulnerability kind of work Mm -hmm. and just make them all talk to each other um, because Mm -hmm. I feel like they would have so much interesting stuff to share. For sure. I would like an invitation, please. For sure. For sure. I appreciate your time, Helen. I think I the the conversation went in surprising directions and important ones. And I there's like just a time I, I like after this, I just need to like sit in silence for a few minutes and like allow my brain to absorb all the things. So I appreciate you connecting dots that were not there for me before. Of course. I mean, as Effie said, right? That's like kind of what ADHD brains do. So um, you know, it comes naturally and I love sharing it. Super interesting, you know, it's like a whole new way of looking and understanding magic that I hadn't actually considered before. I would go as far as to say I was dismissive of magic and ritual and tarot and all those things, not in a contemptuous kind of way, but more like frivolous kind of way, you know. And um, one of my biggest Mm. takeaways is that magic is just another framework and language the things that we call by different names these days, like cognitive behavior therapy or, you know, somatic experiencing and all these things we now have scientific proof and big labels for has been addressed in magic by millennia ago. Yeah, no, it makes sense to me. I mean, the origins of all of our healing and medicine from our indigenous ancestors, that those things that now we we, we take pills and they're delivered right to our door. Right, right, <laughs> right. Before right. that, there were, there's whole practice in really being connected to earth, connected to body. And yeah, I, I appreciated that. I, I think I took mm. away the same thing. Yeah. I don't think this the language around magic or the way that the framework of magic is not going to speak to everyone, but I think it can be considered by, by everyone just to see how it resonates with you. I think Mm -hmm. that's, that's something an important get and a takeaway for me that whatever it takes, right. Whatever it takes for you to feel connected to yourself, whatever it takes for you to get clarity, whatever it takes for you to feel grounded and um, guided in some way. I think, you know, why not magic? Mm -hmm. I think that's insightful to me. Yeah, similarly. I mean, one of the things is, of course, as always, our bodies are communicating with us. Mm -hmm. So pay attention. But what what was interesting, some of the things that helped me think differently around was that tarot is a medium, essentially, for us to hear our intention. Mm. I think that makes a lot of sense. Sure. And I loved the framing that she did with the three-act cycle Mm. and the idea of creating a scene. Mm Mm-hmm. Creating a scene, meaning a space to explore something that's vulnerable. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really beautiful. And mm-hmm. I, part of my goal for 2022 was to really develop a good morning and bedtime routine and, you know, do my flossing and do my meditating and mm-hmm. like do all the things. And I have tried to set the scene. I didn't even have that language, but I have a candle that I use when I do it. Mm-hmm. And I, and I, I want to be more mindful of that now of like the preparation for the thing, being vulnerable to the thing, experiencing mm-hmm. the thing. And then the like aftercare, if you will. Mm-hmm. Yeah. A real food for thought. Yeah. I think tarot and ritual and 
I can't remember what it's called, but I've seen people, they'll have this like crystal dangling at the end of a, a chain, like a beautiful, beautiful apparatus where they use to make decision making, right? You kind of dangle it and depending on which, which mm. way it's turning, it gives you a yes or no answer, right? You ask a yes or no question mm-hmm. and then you sort of get the answer from that, for example. And I think those vessels and apparatus actually get ourselves out of the way of ourselves, and really mm. tap into intuition, right? Which is what you're, what you're also saying, that our bodies, our, our instincts, our subconscious have the answers, you know, and sometimes they, we don't want to hear those answers and we override them by complicated things or being too intellectual. You know, I'll put my hand up for that for sure. And I think mm-hmm. these mm-hmm. kind of modalities just gets you out of your own way. And also... In some way, by feeling that you're abdicating the choice, you sometimes feel free to make that choice. By saying that's what the cards Mm -hmm. say, that's what the crystals say, Mm -hmm. you kind of abdicate Mm -hmm. some of that responsibility and and free up your mind and free up the the tension around those things um, and ultimately make the choice that you would have made anyway, I think. Yeah, I you know that's making me reflect on. So you and I did a reading with mm-hmm. Helen, and in our conversation and reading with her, we focused specifically on the Curious Fox work mm-hmm. and our role in that work and the direction of the work. And I think it it did all the things that you described. It it was like like mind blown mm. truly truly like I was again because I went into it being like oh, I think I know what this is going to be a lot about and then she was like the card says this and the next one says that and each new card was like, <gasps> like, <laughs> I, was, like I was like gobsmacked as you would say yes. I was really yeah and and essentially what the cards told us was that we need to focus on content and go deeper mm-hmm you and I spend a lot of time on background systems mm. and the weekly flow of work mm. and fighting the social media algorithms and shadow mm. banning mm. and the new branding that's going to be coming mm-hmm. out this month that we are really excited about, actually. So yeah. we, we, we'd spend time on that. And all of that's really important. However, at the end of the day, we do this in service of sharing important information mm-hmm. and telling interesting stories that challenge the status quo in love, sex, and relationships. And so... This year, as we inch towards our 100th episode, based on that conversation, yeah, it it feels like we're really going to revisit how we allocate our time, Mm -hmm. our effort, our energy, and how we prioritize telling richer stories and sharing more nuanced insights and being truly led by our curiosity. Absolutely. Absolutely. In a way, it's kind of sad. Well, you see, exactly. The cards told us what we already know that is yeah. the right right thing for us and that's where we're strongest and where we yeah. where we feel fed and 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 just finding mm-hmm. ourselves create systems and crunch numbers and and you know do all the the, yeah. the backend systems which you know we know that needs to be done and then mm-hmm. you know it takes us away from really what we love to do and what if I say so myself, what yeah. we're good at doing. Yeah, yeah it's fascinating. It's fascinating. Uh, yeah. yeah, and it, it, to your point, I think about permission. It, it did give us permission, permission, I think, to let go of some of those things. Exactly. Were, one of the cards was of a, of a bird flying and holding onto a gigantic sword <laughs> that was way too heavy for it to carry. And it as soon as you and I both saw it, I saw you smile, you saw me smile, and we both were like, oh, we know what that's about. Yeah. That we are trying to carry the weight of things mm-hmm. that we need to just let go. 
let go and focus on these conversations. And so, so yeah, yeah. If you are interested in doing a reading with Halen, then she has given us a special promo code. So if you use the word curious at checkout, then you're going to receive 15% off a 30 minute tarot reading with her. And if you want to just find out more about Halen and her work, then you can go to her website or her Instagram, halen.co, where you can check out her programs and resources at learn.halen.co. And again, you can check out her tarot readings and what those experiences are like at tarot.halen.co. And as we mentioned, we are going through a rebrand this month, which we are very, very excited about. And so you are going to be able to see those changes in Instagram and on our website and on Facebook. And so be sure to check in on all of those things at We Are Curious Foxes. And the conversation with Halen was so long and and went in so many different directions that we could not put all of it here. And so there's going to be a bunch of clips that we are going to put into Patreon. And so if you're a patron, go into We Are Curious Foxes you're going to get those bonus content there. And if you've enjoyed this conversation, then we encourage you to like or follow us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you're, you're, you're listening to us from. Rate it, leave a comment, subscribe, share with a friend, all the things that allow us to know that the content that we are giving is valuable. And then you can share us. You can tell us directly by emailing us or giving us a call. You can share a voice memo or an email at listening at wearecuriousfoxes.com, or you can record a question or comment and share it at 201-870-0063. This episode is produced and edited by Nina Pollock, whose editing skills are no less than magical. Our intro music is composed by Dave Saha. We are so grateful for their work. I'm grateful to you for listening. As always, stay curious, friends. Curious Fox podcast is not and will never be the final word on any topic. We solely aim to encourage curiosity and provide a space for exploration through connection and story. We encourage you to listen with an open and curious mind and we'll look forward to your feedback. Stay curious, friends. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious. Stay curious.